Hi, I'm Nick. Hi, I'm Thomas. And this is the Unbossing Podcast. A show about unleashing the full potential of every organization. Let's focus. And the first Zoom I want to do is on the innovation paradox. You know, what you also talked about is that um, I believe it was about 79% of CEOs, they state that innovation is a top priority for their organization. And at the same time, 94% of those same CEOs state that their organization isn't actually really good at innovating. So you, you got some kind of paradox. Yeah? Are, are they really meaning what they are saying? Uh, are they not following up with actions? Don't they trust their people and their capabilities? And the first thing we'd like to know is what are, what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, you know, obviously today, most leaders understand how important innovation is. They know that it is the only guarantee of long-term customer loyalty. It is the only way to uh, outperform a mediocre industry often. Uh, it is the only insurance against irrelevance. So they get that. And yet they, 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 they've, been, they've been satisfied with kind of half measures. You know, I meet a lot of leaders who say, you know, we're serious about innovation. And I say, well, what does that mean? They say, well, we have an innovators award ceremony. We have a, a CEO slush fund uh, to fund uh, special projects. And so I say, well, yes, but have you really made this a, 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 a core capability? So there's a, little, there's a little test we do, we talk about in the book, three very simple questions that you can ask of every single person, uh, people in the warehouses, uh, in tech support, uh, administrative assistance, and you just ask them three questions. First, has the company taught you how to think like a game changer? Have they invested in your creative capital? Yes or no? Second question, um, do they make it easy to, to, to experiment with a new idea? Is it easy to get, let's say, 50% of your time and, and uh, a few thousand euros to go try something new? And then thirdly, is it clear to you that your manager, your boss, is accountable for this? Are there clear metrics? Do they talk about it? And does the, does the, the, does the innovation performance of your unit influence the compensation of your boss? Well, as you might imagine, when you ask people those three questions, the answer is no, no, and no. I haven't been trained. It's not easy. And I don't think my boss really is responsible for this. So then I have to go back to the CEO and say, well, you told me you were serious, but I'm curious, how do you use the word serious? Because this doesn't sound serious to me. You don't train. You don't make it easy. You don't hold people accountable. So I think, you know, we, we, we've been satisfied, as I say, for, for not really taking this seriously. And I, and I think one of the challenges is you have to look at every single system process uh, structure in an organization and say, how do you make this pro-innovation? How do you make it support rather than frustrate innovation? So just like, you know, for years, companies have spent time re-engineering their operating models for efficiency and speed. We now have to re-engineer the management model for innovation. Are we training people? Are we putting in the right metrics? Do we hold people accountable? Uh, um, do we have uh, internal kind of kickstart or Indiegogo that makes it easy to crowdfund ideas inside of the organization? Have we built relatively small units where people's voices get heard? So it's a lot of work to re-engineer a company. So innovation is, 
is something that happens not despite the system, but because of it. And I think very few CEOs have, have kind of made that jump yet. And, and it's hard because almost everything that already exists in the organization is there to serve the cause of efficiency, alignment, discipline, but not the cause of creativity, you know, innovation and so on. So it is a, a substantial challenge. But, but the bottom line is as much work as your organization has spent kind of keeping your operating model up to date and retooling that, you got to spend an equal amount making sure that the management model supports everywhere, all the time, relentless innovation. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, a follow-up question that I immediately have, Gary, that is that um, how do you control the, the, a, a, a top-of-mind question a leader might have is, okay, Gary, but how do I control then innovation in my organization? If everybody has the skills and everybody starts posting new ideas and everybody starts doing this, How do I control it? If I have a separate innovation team that I can give targets to, I can control it and I can monitor it. Yeah. What you're saying well, is... You've, 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 you've just put your finger on exactly, as you say, the paradox here. Because yeah. uh, the control mindset does not work very well when it comes to innovation. Now, that doesn't mean that, doesn't mean that, that you, 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 know, you just do stupid things. But, but the control needs to come in a different way. Um, you know, you talked about setting up a unit and giving giving people targets. I see this all the time. I mean, one one of the one of the lies that a lot of kind of management experts have perpetuated is that you simply uh, that 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 a larger organization simply can't be innovative. The only way that can happen is you have to carve off the innovation unit, put it in an incubator, an accelerator, something, protect it from all those you know people in, in the core business. But our, all of our experience says. Those things don't really produce innovation. You know, the, the challenge in most companies is you have to radically evolve the core business. It's not about having something out on the edge that is going to, you got to be innovating everywhere, not just in a few places. But how, where does the control come from? I would say it comes from three things. Number one, you have to teach people how to, how to uh, judge their own ideas, right? You have to teach people What what does a high quality idea look like? Because you don't want people pursuing ideas that aren't going to make a difference or 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 or, or are simply flights of fancy. So you need people, first of all, to self-edit their ideas and think about, well, you know, this is, seems interesting, but does it really meet a customer need? Is it really economically viable? Is it something we can really do with our capabilities? Uh, so you need that first filter so the organization is not inundated with kind of kind of somewhat stupid ideas. The second thing you can use is a peer review process. So it's not only what I think, but you know, when I put this idea out and I'm trying to get funding for it from my peers, are people willing to sign up? Do they think it's a good idea? You know, we built years and years ago, we built, I think, the first internal innovation marketplace in the world for Shell. Uh, uh, and it was called Game Changer. It still runs. It's created billions of dollars of market value. We built this in the 90s. And at that time, as, as it is today, anybody who has an idea... You don't go up the chain of command. You go to a group of your peers, a peer review panel. If they think the idea has promise, they give you a, a few thousand dollars to start experimenting, and then off you go. So first, teach people what a good idea looks like so they can self-edit. Second, you know, make sure that, that, that the funding process involves a peer review so you have others looking at this idea. By the way, not, not your boss because, you know, the, the problem in many organizations is, You might have a great idea, but if it doesn't fit with the immediate priorities 
or the prejudices of your boss, the idea dies. You know, th think how crazy it is. You know, in most companies, there's only one place to go for funding for a new idea, and that's up the chain of command. So that's like if in Silicon Valley, and I'm looking out right here, the sun's still coming up here this morning. Right here in Silicon Valley, it would be like we had one venture capitalist. Mm -hmm. and, and everybody had to go through that, that gateway. That's stupid. So you need multiple sources of experimental capital, and you need peers doing this evaluation. And, mm -hmm. and, and they'll, you know, with enough people, they'll tell you whether this idea has promise or not. And then third, the last way you kind of manage the risk here is that you teach people how to do rapid prototyping at low cost. So the idea is, you know, we're going to give you a small amount of money to go out and test your hypotheses, build an experiment, run a test, run a prototype, talk to smart people. But but the goal early on is to maximize the ratio of learning over investment. Be very clear on your hypotheses. Think about how to test them at low cost. Bring that data back, refine, and then and then do it again. So so there are ways of 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 of, of putting innovation at least in some kind of a container. And, and putting some risk bounds around it. But but that can't be done using the traditional control measures or or having a CEO says, I'm going to give you the targets and I'm going to I'll be the one that does the review every month and so on. So but that is that is that is the balance of being able to be both very bold in your thinking and experimentation, but also prudent in how you go about it. Gary, you were talking about this platform. You introduced that shell with the name Game Changer. In the 90s. In the 90s yeah. already. Uh, I assume that was a huge success as you describe it. Um, can you talk a little bit more about that? And would you recommend that uh, with your knowledge and experience today still as a tool? Yeah, I, I think absolutely. In fact, it's kind of interesting to me that so few companies have followed suit. I actually wrote an article about that. I want to say probably... Maybe in 93, 94, I don't know, you know, uh, almost what that is, 30 years ago, something. But but here's here's the simple idea. Um, you know, let, let me come back to Silicon Valley a moment, which has created more wealth per capita than any place in the world. There, there is no but 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 it's not only here. Obviously, there are other innovation hotspots around the world. But here there is no there is no CEO of Silicon Valley. There's no single person or executive committee that's deciding how much we're going to invest in nanotechnology and cybersecurity, in cloud, in, 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 in genomics, right? So what, what you have here is three markets. You have a market for new ideas, thousands, tens of thousands of business plans coming in every year to VC companies. You have a market for a talent. So smart people coming, wanting to work on the next big thing, what's going to be the next Airbnb or whatever that is. And then you have a market for experimental capital. So institutions and angel investors all seeking to fund, you know, great projects. So if you think about it, Silicon Valley does not work by resource allocation. There's not somebody at the top saying we're going to put this much money. It works by resource attraction. You, 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 you put up an idea and either it attracts talent and capital or it doesn't. People kind of vote in, en masse and, and good ideas move forward. So the art, what we did at Shell, and we wrote this article many years ago called Bringing Silicon Valley Inside, but it was, it was similar arguments saying that, you know, if, if, if you think about it, the, the, the primary reason companies miss the future is they tend to overinvest in what is at the expense of what could be. And that happens because the resource allocation process is typically controlled by people who are running the existing businesses. They're politically well-connected. They're in the budget meetings. They're in the planning meetings. 
they have these powerful arguments why you should give them more money and invest more in the in the business and the status quo. And you don't have those markets for for new ideas, the markets for talent and so on. And so that's that that was our argument all of those all of those years ago. And that's what they built at Shell. And I, I, I believe it still exists. You can go look. And, and, and I think if you go to the website, you can if you put in Shell Game Changer, I think you will find what they're doing. And now they're open to ideas from around the world and so on. So, yes, I think it's a mystery to me why more organizations haven't done that. Because, um, you know, we just we just know that that old command economy, kind of the top down Soviet style resource allocation, there's almost no chance you'll you'll find the future that way. I'll, I'll give you a quick little example. I was working, this must be almost 10 years ago with a Korean company, I won't name the name, but we had taught a bunch of young people how to think like, like game changers. And, and they were working particularly around new ideas with, with social technology. So this bunch of kids comes to me all excited. They say, Gary, we have this amazing idea. Like you go into a bar or a club, you have your smartphone, you know, you have your social profile, geolocation, you can see who else is nearby. If you want to meet them, you can click. If they want to meet you, you go have a real physical meeting. Isn't this like amazing? I said, yeah, that's, I like that school. Now we have to go get funding for that idea. So now they, this, this young team takes this idea to, to the executive committee, average age, probably close to 60 to get funding. And so here's the question these guys ask. First question is like, so if you're at the club, let me understand this. And you're with your friends. Why are you on your smartphone? That's not very polite. You need to just be with your friend. They're like, well, like everybody's on their smartphone, but they're sharing it back and forth, right? It's still, it's okay. Second question was, and 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 why would you leave your friends to go meet somebody else? Why would you like, and, and what do you mean hookup? What does this mean hookup? Why would you go meet somebody else? So anyway, so they didn't fund it. A few months later, I think literally about six months later, Mark Andreessen and a few others fund Tinder. But, you know, you can't, you can't, you can't have investment decisions being made by people who built the old model and have most of their emotional equity in, in the old model, right? So you need uh, 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 more people, younger people, people closer to the future, having a voice in, in where our resources go and what we fund. Because if it's made by the old goats, mm -hmm. you'll just like, you'll, you'll miss opportunity after opportunity. Mm. So, well, that's, um, <laughs> I couldn't, couldn't agree more. Um, but reality is, Gary, that um, most of a lot of tech, tech top ex executive teams um, the members of top executive teams are 50 plus years. So, and they might feel intuitively that the organization indeed needs to shift from efficiency at scale to adaptability and creativity at scale. For you, where is the, where should the pressure be coming from for, for them to, to make the leap? To make the leap and try to shift their perspective, not only on organizations, but basically on the yep. world and how it's changing. You know, I think, to be fair, I think most CEOs kind of get this now, the ones I talk to. They might not express it exactly how I would or you would, but I think most of them realize that their organizations are now up against challenges that lie outside the performance envelope of that old management model. Right. They know they're too conservative. They have too many layers. They're not moving fast enough. They're not daring enough. Uh, but they're really not sure how to change it. 
Um, and, and um, you know, if, if you think how, how difficult it has been for many organizations to think radically about their business model, if you're in banking, publishing, hospitality, whatever, and you see all this changing around the world, I can tell you it's even more difficult to think radically about the management model because it has a huge impact on your own role and your power and your authority. And yet I think a lot of leaders are there, but they really, they really don't know how to move forward. And so I, I think three things are required to actually break, break free of, of, of kind of the status quo. Uh, one is you have to start to calculate in your own organization the cost of that bureaucratic drag, the cost of that old model. And mostly we don't we don't have any way of benchmarking that. So you have to ask yourself, you know, the 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 the, the apathy, the timidity, the conservatism, the insularity, uh, the politicking. What does that actually cost? So we built something called the bureaucratic mass index, the BMI, and it's free. If you go to if you go to humanocracy.com under I think tools, you'll find it. Anybody can take it. But you know, today companies measure customer satisfaction with NPS. They measure their environmental impact. Uh, you know, they measure all kinds of things. They measure quality. So, so you know, start, create a benchmark, you know, baseline this, try to understand how much this is costing your organization, because that will give you some incentive to start to actually work on this, number one. Number two, they need new models, because most of us have grown up in and around organizations that all fit that, that old template. Right. We, we, we've all worked in organizations that have four or five or six layers that, you know, decisions are made at the top, strategy gets set at the top. And so so um, until you believe there really is an alternative, you may you may not like the status quo, but you also may not believe that you can change it. Right. I mean, if you go back 10 years ago, we you know, maybe we didn't like the pollution from from combustion engines, but very few of us believed we could create electric vehicles. There was really an alternative. So. The good news is there are a lot of alternatives, and we talk about them in the book. And you know, um, one of you know one of the, one of the best alternatives is there in Holland. You know, at Birdsorg, the home health organization, and you know that's one of many. I don't yeah. want to say that's the only one, but but you look at a company like Birdsorg and you say, okay, they're delivering this this they're in a highly regulated industry in healthcare, delivering a complex uh, a service uh, with sixteen thousand employees. And two managers. That's a span of control of one to eight thousand, right? So once you've seen that, you can't unsee it, right? It's like I, my head explodes. Okay, like wow, there there are other ways of getting control and focus other than layers and lots of rules. So number two, first is motivation. You got to measure it. Second, you got to believe there are other models. Go learn from them, understand them, like understand how they work. And then the last thing is you have to have a migration path from here to there. You know, you can't you can't just blow up the old model and start the new model. And I think one of the dilemmas for a lot of CEOs, they want to believe there's kind of plug and play here. There's just like some model I can take off the shelf. You know, like, let me just call the consultants and tell me, tell them I want one of these agile things and just come in three months and like, like do agile on me. Right. And then go away. Well, yeah. it doesn't work that way. If, if you look at these kind of post bureaucratic organizations like Birds are. All of them have been working on this for at least a decade, right? It's been a slow, exploratory, evolutionary process driven by this desire to unleash human capability at work. Everyone has built a model that works for them, but it's not going to work for everybody. 
So you have to say, you know, instead of like some big top down change program, how do I start to encourage everyone across the organization to start experimenting? Just like we experiment with new product solutions, let's experiment with how we lead, manage, allocate, plan. And we, we go in great depth in the book on kind of how you hack management, how anybody can start to build a hack. And But, you know, the one of the things that really influenced me on this was open innovation. So today, you know, Linux, which was the first real big inno open innovation success story, uh, Linux is the most ubiquitous software in the world. It runs on all servers, on most mobile phones and so on. Um, it has about 26 million lines of code created with uh, 15,000 contributors and, and no, no management superstructure. But interesting, Linus Torvalds, right, the Finn, who was kind of the original architect of this, he says something uh, repeatedly that I think is very important. He said, uh, when you're trying to do something that is complex and unprecedented, a massively parallel process of experimentation beats a top-down design. Right? There's not enough. You can't take, you know, a few senior executives. They're not smart enough to design holistically the alternative to that old bureaucratic model. It has to emerge. And it emerges by giving people permission to experiment and 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 asking them to start with some new principles like openness and 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 meritocracy and say if we took this seriously what would change, and so I think um, you know I I believe for sure that as we look forward the most effective change is not going to be top down it will be socially constructed, and and the way you solve these problems is is in an open kind of way which is why we actually built. A platform to do this because I couldn't find any of the existing software out there that allows you to bring thousands of people together to solve these complex organizational problems. But, you know, that would be my simple thing. If you're a leader and you really want to tackle this, start to measure the costs and share that across the organization. You know, uh, challenge everybody to reduce that BMI number. Number two, spend a lot of time learning from those new models. And, and as you look at them, what you need to learn is less about what those companies do than how they think, right? We usually, when we benchmark, we say, well, what do you do? And then you try to, to extract this one practice, bring it back and, 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 and put it in the soul, and it just doesn't work. So ask how they think. Where, what do you believe? What's your passion? How did you get started? Uh, but that's very important to look at those models. And then third, you know, start to give people in your own business permission to hack. And if you're kind of on the front lines, don't wait for somebody else to give you to give you permission. Just like do it. You know, I, I'll, I'll give you this one very quick little anecdote. So when when Pope Francis, when he became pontiff in 2013, he said he was very bold. He said, I want to to, to tear down the the, 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 the the bureaucracy of the Catholic Church. And he actually called the Vatican bureaucracy leprosy which is a much stronger word than I have used anywhere, right? He called it like this deadly disease. So somebody last year, they said, so uh, Pope Francis, how is it going? And he said, I feel like I'm trying to clean the Sphinx with a toothbrush, right? Like, like he's not going to live long enough, right? Particularly when you start at 80, you might not have enough years left to do this. So my advice to the Pope is you need more toothbrushes. And that's the same for a CEO. You cannot do this by yourself. Um, you know, one of the things, if, if anybody goes to humanocracy.com, there's a free course there. 
It's four and a half hours of instruction. We we have Yostablock from Birdzorg, and we have Zhang Rumin from Hire. We have the most amazing management renegades in the world. Plus, it'll tell you how to start hacking wherever you are, whatever your role, whatever your power, because too many people in our organizations believe that they don't have the power to change this, that they have to wait for CHRO, CIO, CEO to say we're going to change. I can tell you what, if you wait for bureaucrats to uninstall bureaucracy, you will wait a long time. Yeah, yeah. Thomas, uh, your sound is off. We don't hear you anymore. But I'll ask the question for him because I know which question he's going to okay. ask you, Gary. <laughs> So uh, I know Thomas is convinced, you know, he's, he's one of those corporate CEOs, as he said, 15 years of uh, leading a, a traditional food company and intuitively doing these things. Um, and he's now on a mission to, to, to spread the message. Um, and the question that he had was, if, if I'm the CEO of a traditional food company and I want to head in this, in this direction using the three tips that you just clearly explained, what is the biggest pitfall that I have to watch out for? What is the biggest mistake you know, that I, I could make? One of, I, I don't know if it's so much a mistake, uh, but one of the challenges that I think you have to be very cognizant of is that there's no way to really reinvent management and, and build a, a daring, resilient, creative company without flattening the pyramid. And as you might expect, people who've spent a good part of their lives accumulating bureaucratic power, right? Climbing the pyramid. This is how we index our careers. We go mm -hmm. from, you know, supervisor to team leader to unit head to vice president and so on. Telling those people that you want to flatten the pyramid, that maybe you're going to have one or two layers, that their role has to change from being manager to mentor, that can you can get a lot of resistance doing that, right? And again, what I find you will, you will get CEOs, a lot of resistance when they try to kind of do this more top down, when they try to do it through their EVPs and SVPs and so on. Um, people will kind of say yes because you're the boss, they'll kind of go, Yeah, sure. But then they have a hundred ways of, of, of making you fail, right? Of, of telling you all the reasons this can't happen. You know, we have compliance. Uh, issues and people don't have the capabilities to do this. So they'll find all kinds of excuses. They'll slow it down. And a little bit like the Pope, you're just going to, you know, you just, you won't be able, you just won't have the time to do it. Yes. So I think that's the biggest mistake I think leaders make is not recognizing that you have to make this bottom up, that you have to engage the entire organization in doing this. You know, when, when we did something like this with, with Adidas in North America, their North American division of Adidas or Adidas. Yes as we say in the United States. You know, we went to 3,000 employees and we said, we need to build a pro-innovation company. What needs to change? We, we taught 3,000 employees about, you know, about experimentation and transparency and meritocracy and so on. And we said, if, if we're serious about this, what will we change in our management model? We had more than 4,000 management hacks that were created. And then they designed, they, they turned the best of those into experiments and so on. So, if you try to do this kind of down through the old structure, it's very hard as a seal. But let me also say this. What we know is that when you make this move, everybody's job gets better. 
So initially, I think a lot of the managerial layers are going like, wow, I'm going to lose my authority. I'm going to lose my power. How do I, how do I, what's my career like? But here's the interesting thing. Gallup data, poll data, says that managers are even less engaged at work than their employees. Because, you know, not, none of us like being, sorry, very few people like being a micromanager. Right? If you're a parent, the happiest thing is when your kids start to make good decisions on their own, right? Where you're not trying to put guardrails and protect them and watch. They just like they've grown up. They can do this. And, and it's amazingly a positive thing as a leader to see people grow, to see them take more responsibility. But but it is a it is a hard process kind of getting through there and and debureaucratizing yourself and getting out of those old patterns and habits. We, we tell a story, and I won't try to tell it here now, but we tell the story of a wonderful uh, a bit of work going on at Michelin, uh, the French tire maker, yes. uh, where, where starting with frontline supervisors, they've, they've spent the last 10 years with, with people learning how to give away their power. Everybody's job gets better. You, as, as, as an unboss, you get to work on more interesting problems, right? You, 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 you see people grow. You are no longer having to solve trivial operational problems, right? So I think, you know, but it is, it is, it is a, it is a journey. It's a process, and you know, I, I watched Hire in China go through this when they, when they, they, they flattened their organization. They, 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 they divided in uh, uh, their organization into four thousand micro enterprises, and in that process, mm-hmm. eleven thousand managerial jobs went away. They will never come back. But they didn't. They didn't fire all those people. Those people went to work in little micro enterprises. They started to be able to be entrepreneurs, and 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 mm-hmm. you know, and it was liberating for many, many of them to no longer be stuck in the middle and 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 play those managerial kinds of roles. So that's that's my my biggest thing. If if you really want to do this, you got to go to the whole organization. You got to get them engaged. And 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 what you'll find is that that you know when you when you start to have dozens or hundreds or even thousands of people saying, hey, we can change this, we can do this. There's no small group at the top that really can stand in the way, right? They're either going to get on board or they're going to leave, but they can no longer become the gating, uh, you know, factor uh, in in the change process itself. Thank you. Mm -hmm. Guys, can you hear me again? Yeah, yeah, (laughs) thank you. Gary, there was one thing... I would like to dive in shortly what you said, and that is most CEOs get it. At least most CEOs you talk about or you talk with to. Now, uh, Gary, where is the pressure coming from? Have they, of course, uh, uh, many of them have read your book. Many of them have reflected. Uh, but from within the organization, do you see pressure coming for example, from the HR department who says, hey, guys, we cannot hire the talent anymore, which we need. Or if we hire the talent, the talent leaves us after four months and tells us like this, I don't want to work. Or is it the financial uh, uh, guys who say, hey, uh, all our sales are coming from products which are at least 10 years old. Where is the major pressure Coming from Thomas, I, I think it's all of those things. It's all of those things. I think you, you just you, you put your finger on them. You know, it's it's first it's it's coming from customers, right? Customers are are their their expectations are changing so fast today, 
that many organizations are struggling to keep up with them. You know, you see you see new digital banks coming like N26 in Germany and so on. And and you know, if, if you can't, if 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 you are not proactively redefining customer expectations, if you don't have an entire business that's built from the customer backwards, you're going to lose. And so number one, I think I think people get that. I think number two, if you just look at the at the underlying pace of change in our environment, you know, there's not a CEO I know who do, who won't say my organization needs to change faster than it is. Right? So much new technology coming, new opportunities. So they feel, I think they feel that pressure. They certainly feel the pressure from all those new entrants that are redefining industries and so on. So I think there's there's a great external pressure, as you said. I think there's also pressure coming from the next generation of employees, mm-hmm. right? right? The, 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 the young people are coming to work today. This is the first, maybe now the second, but you know, in a generation in history whose primary reference point isn't a pyramid, right? If, if, if you're an old guy like me, or even not so old, you know, um, school, business, government, religion, it was all a pyramid. It was all a hierarchy. Now you have kids coming to work and they've grown up on the social web. And guess what? If you have followers on the web, it's because they chose to follow you, right? There's no trickle-down power on the web. <laughs> um, if you're on the web and, and you're on YouTube, nobody asks, did you go to film school? Nobody's asking, did you guys go to journalism school? Or like, are you producing great content? That's all they ask. Let's judge me by my work. Yeah. Uh, so I think people, young people today, they want to work in organizations that are built around the same values, wherever I, every idea gets heard, where it's your peers rather than a boss who decides what's good and what's not, where you only, you only have, have influence if you have willing followers. And if your organization is not built around those values, there's no way you'll get the best people. So I think, I think for all of those reasons, uh, you know, there's enormous amount of pressure. I'm very sympathetic to CEOs today. And, and unfortunately, you know, um, uh, for many of them, particularly in larger organizations, under these pressures, they've tried to take easy routes out. And the easy routes are, let me merge with a big competitor and take the consolidation gains, right, and see if I can't, you know, whatever, or even worse, let me merge with a big competitor so I have more political power in Brussels or Washington or somewhere else, and I can influence the regulators and and tilt the playing field to my advantage. Or they may say, uh, let me do massive share buybacks, right, so I can at least create the illusion of increasing earnings per share by just reducing the denominator and having fewer shares, so financial engineering. So you've seen enormous amount of this over the last few years. I think in my country in the last three or four years, there's two and a half trillion dollars of share buybacks. You know, I, I see some of the biggest companies in the world that, that have spent $100 billion buying back their own shares because they don't know how to unleash the innovation capacity inside their own organizations. So I think, I think you know, uh, that's why it's it's not that re-engineering your company, creating, doing entrepreneurship at scale is so hard, but very few leaders have really tried it. They don't have a model. And so what they revert to is the things they already know how to do. Let me do a deal. Let me do some financial re-engineering. Let me, let me take some cost out, you know, and, and um, uh, you know, those things will take you so far. But most organizations have, have run out of road there. There's just like, there's not much more you can do. So, um, uh, so I, you know, 
I, I, yeah. I think with that, I mean, this is why ultimately I'm optimistic because I do believe that there, there are these pressures and, you know, so we'll try to avoid them as long as we can, but kind of ultimately human beings were pretty good when we finally have to, we'll, we'll, we'll invent something better. We, we will do that. I have no doubt. And so I think there's enough pressure now, you know, you got this new generation coming to work, they're pressuring the system. The other thing that is, that I think is very exciting is we now have new tools. You know, if, if you go back uh, even a decade, certainly more than that, there was no way of bringing large numbers of people together to solve complex problems. Now you can do that thanks to all these new collaborative tools. You know, think about how amazing is this. The, the group of researchers that confirmed the Higgs boson at, at, the, at the Hadron Large Collider, um, working on the Atlas project there, 5,000 people collaborated on that. The paper has 5,000 names on the paper, authors, right? You simply couldn't have done that uh, 10 years ago. So all across science, whether it's the Human Genome Project or the Human Brain Project, you now see people coming together at scale, solving these super complicated problems. We now have the tools to do this inside organizations, across organizations. So I'm super optimistic that, that, that this is going to happen. And I hope that our little book is just a little bit of a spur or a catalyst to accelerate this, but you know what? It's going to happen whether whatever I do or don't do. It's still going to happen. Yeah, yeah. I think to 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 round up our conversation, Gary. I don't think it's. A, I think we agree. It's it's not a question if this is going to happen. Um, it's more a question or when are you as a leader going to start this transformation? And hopefully, after reading your book or listening to this podcast, the answer will be uh, tomorrow. <laughs> um, so. Let me thank you very much. Um, this entire conversation was, again, a confirmation of you being some kind of older brother or something, saying sometimes word for word things that I, I like to share as well. So thank you so much. Thomas, you have any final words? It's an, it's an amazing talk, which we could uh, just prolong by a couple of hours, Nick, uh, or, or, or in other yeah. episodes. Yeah. It's, uh, yeah. it's great stuff. And uh, uh, Gary, this is, of course, also a talent to bring this storyline over and to bring over the why like you do it. Well, thank yeah, you. In, in, in a way that people understand it. You know, I will tell you, I, I am the great, uh, uh, I have the great honor to work and to learn from a lot of management renegades around the world. This is not just my thinking. It's many, many, many people I talk to. I know you guys are at the forefront of that. You're doing it for real in the organizations you work with and influence. And, you know, in the end, this is, you know, this is all of our challenges to free the human spirit at work, uh, to create the kind of organizations, you know, if, I, I would just leave with this thought, you know, here we are in, in the middle of the pandemic, uh, what you've seen here is that the large hierarchical organizations, our healthcare organizations, our our government bureaucracies have struggled. I, I don't I don't blame them. You can't you know it's just you know in 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 when when you have a problem that's both very complex and moving very fast, there's just no way that bureaucracy works. You know, one of the Italian uh, healthcare leaders said the virus moves faster than our bureaucracy, but so does everything else. So what what you've seen in this in this terrible pandemic is. You've seen ordinary people improvising, creating networks of nurses, physicians, learning, sharing best practice, bringing data together, improving protocols. It's, it's you know, as, as terrible as it is, it's been this incredible uh, example of human resilience and, and ingenuity. 
And so, and, and of course, though, it's not the, the only challenge we confront. We have climate change, we have ethnic strife, we have cybersecurity issues, mass economic migration, and so on. And so no longer can we afford to waste any human capacity. So as a species, we have to figure out how to leave that old model behind, how to unleash all this latent capability in our organizations. And it's, it's you guys, it's everyone else who cares about this that is, that is going to make this, this happen. Thomas, I must say the the discussion and the conversation we had with uh, Gary Hamill is still uh, resonating very strongly uh, with me. And uh, I found it quite hard to pick only three key takeaways from this episode. Um, but I did my best and I have them. But let's start with, with yours. What's the the first thing that really struck you? in the in this interview hi nick for me first thing gary is a force of nature and what i also like in this force of nature is that he always brings the right dose also of sense of humor strong storytelling strong pictures for example when we think about this brilliant idea of the bureaucratic mass index i just love it and I also heard it from you during the podcast, and we also already spoke about it uh, in the last couple of days. It's just an amazing idea, and I would recommend everybody to go to the website of Gary and and, and download it and and look how to how to calculate it. Mm -hmm. Next thing for me, and also that with the right uh, dose of humor, which which is based in reality, is. This story of this current fad of 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 huge companies of saying, "Hey, let's let's unleash innovation, and let's rent or even buy these fancy lofts in the middle of Berlin, and let's sit some hoodies over there with a nice photo op, and there will be our innovation lab." And this is falling so much of flat into the water it's incredible i had already several discussions with colleagues about it during the last couple of years and gary is spot on on that because innovation if it should work has to be implemented in the core business now knowing you and your fable for innovation and how to create an environment for innovation, for fostering innovation. What's your take on that? Well, obviously I couldn't agree more. Uh, to me, this is a perfect example. So the, the, the perspective of leaders to carve off a part of the organization to work specifically on innovation is a perfect example of the old way of thinking, right? It's, the, the research and development department, we're going we're gonna to separate it, we're going to close it off, we're going to sign all these um, confidentiality agreements, and exactly. only a few people can know what kind of innovation we're doing. And um, what strikes me is that that's also a perfect example of the, the, the error in the management system that we are observing as of today. 
it didn't used to be an error because the source or the goal of the system was to solve one problem and that's to scale efficiency. And um, from that perspective, it makes sense to approach innovation and research and developments in a such a way. But the problem today is not scaling efficiency. The problem is scaling adaptability and creativity. And if you want to solve that problem, you need to empower the entire organization in the core business. And as he says, teach them the skills. Um, make sure that also struck me, Thomas, is make sure that they have direct access to several locations in the organization where they can get their funds to start an experiment and an MVP. And remember the example of, imagine Silicon Valley would have only one venture capitalist. Yes. That wouldn't work, right? But still in the system of today, you have one person or one team deciding whether you get a fund or not. And then the, the last uh, example was the game changer example. Instead of, of go, yeah, of Shell. Instead of going, uh, carving off a specific team, working in, a, in the basement on uh, <laughs> secret projects, they kind of opened up innovation. And just like Gary, I'm an incredible believer, especially with the technologies of today, to open up innovation and, and not only work on innovative ideas with your employees, but also include external experts, external contributors, and so on and so on. So. Yeah, on in terms of innovation, that's what really struck me. Fully agree, Nick. Now, in terms of, um, let's say, more the leadership side of things, um, what's your key takeaway there? Oh, there I have to say, I think Gary is an eternal optimist because he was clearly saying that most CEOs these days are getting it. They are getting it that they have to move away from the Tayloristic uh, organization model and have to become unbossed. And I have to say that my honest opinion on that is, I don't think so. I don't think that the majorities of CEOs are getting it already today. And if they are so to say getting it, then it's for me rather a question of the HR department, the R&D department, um, uh, other directors uh, going a bit on their nerves saying, listen, we have to do something with, uh, with this agile stuff. Yeah? Otherwise, uh, we, we, don't we cannot hire talent anymore. And then the CEO uh, coming to us, Nick, and say, hey, guys, can you do me this agile thing? Uh, come on with a, with, a, with a bunch of people, please. Do me, make me agile. Uh, and please finish it in three months. This yeah. is this is this is something which which uh, which strikes it because because it's right out of real life. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Absolutely. And um, to add on that, I think um, in terms of leadership, um, my key takeaway there is the similarities with. Um, uh, so, uh, software development and especially the open source software development. Yeah, um, the statement that uh, a leader in open source development is someone who makes a proposal and um, attracts a lot of followers based on the content and the value that he could deliver to the open source. Uh, 
And that definition of leadership is is fairly straight in in line with um, the definition of leadership in uh, unbossed organizations. It's not just someone who received bureaucratic power. Um, actually, if you need bureaucratic power to make changes in the organization, then chances are that you're not a leader. A leader yeah. is someone who stand stands up, uses his talents to make proposals to improve and innovate the organization and attracts the followers to realize this ID. And uh, then I come back to my first point. The only thing as a bureaucratic leader you need to do is create a system that facilitates this, empowers this, instead of uh, blocking it. Fully agree, Nick. In other words, what you are saying is you can be also a leader without a title. <laughs> absolutely, absolutely, yes, yes. You don't need a title nor a mandate. Yeah, so I think this is a, a wonderful conclusion of a, of a podcast which offers so much and so, so many of, of conclusions. Same with the book, of course. It's a, it's, it's a treasure. Absolutely. And uh, it was a pleasure. And uh, now let's go to the next one. Ladies and gentlemen, we hope that you've enjoyed this inspiring episode of the Unbossing Podcast. To round today's episode up, we would like to give the word to Thomas for a very special request. Thanks, Nick. Dear listeners, if you would like to recommend to us other possible interview guests who did lead successfully or even unsuccessfully interesting and inspiring projects where they liberated their people from bureaucracy, gave them more freedom in order to do uh, their work and their passion, please feel free to contact us. You find the contact details on our website. Music